Um, go ahead and open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 1. Um, if you're using one of our Bibles, that's page number 79. If you have the large print Bible of ours, it's 139. Uh, this morning, we are beginning our series entitled, I Quit at Leviticus. Um, doing a series on Leviticus is a great bucket list item for pastors. Um, it's not very often that pastors do a series on Leviticus. Uh, Pastor John and I, we're going to be able to cross this off our list. So that's great. Um, many of you are familiar with reading the Bible in a year where you follow a guide uh, to help you uh, read through the entire Bible in one calendar year. I know many of you have done it. Um, but if you've ever done that, uh, you know that Leviticus is a challenge. It's one of those books that uh, we never read. It's a book that makes us quit the whole process. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of a strange book, uh, sort of a little bit like this altar is kind of strange. I'm hoping that when you walked in this morning and saw this, you your reaction was, well, that's kind of odd. Uh, what is that thing doing in the middle of the room? If that was your reaction, that's great, because just as this altar is kind of strange, the book of Leviticus uh, is kind of strange. And there's a number of reasons why we avoid the book, why we don't really read it or fall asleep while we're reading it. Um, and one of those reasons is that it contains rituals that we don't do. Uh, it begins with five sacrifices um, that um, are, you know, are very detailed and, and this kind of thing. And um, we don't do sacrifices. The sacrifices that are talked about in these first five chapters happen on an altar similar to uh, this one. And again, we, there's lots of bloodshed with the animals that are sacrificed, and um, we don't do that. And so why should we read about rituals that we don't do? Uh, a second reason is that Leviticus is hard to read is that it talks about a priesthood that we don't know. Aaron and his sons, um, in Leviticus, it describes how they are dedicated as priests and they have duties as priests. They're the ones who perform the sacrifices that happen on uh, the altar. And we don't ever interact with Jewish priests, so why would we read about a priesthood that we don't know? And then the book of Leviticus contains laws that seem irrelevant. Now, to be clear, Leviticus does have some laws that make sense to follow uh, today, um, but there are others that really don't seem as relevant. Uh, don't mix fabrics in your clothing, or don't clip the edges of your beard, or you can't make a permanent sale of your land, or uh, there's the death penalty for cursing your parents, which you know some parents are like, yeah, we should do that. Uh, no, you shouldn't, actually. Um, but why study laws that seem so irrelevant? And I think as we approach the book of Leviticus, there are some things that we need to understand about it. Um, the book of Leviticus was written for liberated slaves. It was written for liberated slaves. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. Uh, they were slaves. Their parents were slaves. Their grandparents were slaves. Their great-grandparents were slaves. Slavery was all they knew. And in slavery, the Israelites were at the bottom of Egyptian society. Uh, the Egyptian gods, they were always in charge. And the Israelites hadn't heard from their God for generations. And so now God shows up and he frees them and their world is literally being turned right side up. Uh, but that is unfamiliar territory 
for them. Uh, the other thing about the book of Leviticus is it addresses this thing that I'm called, I am a child of God, uh, now what? Okay, I'm a child of God, now what? Um, the offering song that we listened to many times said, I am a child of God. And that is what God told the Israelites. You are my son. Uh, and that's great news. But there is a question. Uh, I'm a child of God. Now what am I supposed to do? What happens next? Um, again, the, the Israelites, all they knew was slavery. And now they're the children of God. What does that even mean? Uh, some of us view faith in Jesus as an end point, that we believe in Jesus so that we can go to heaven, and then we're done. Um, and we do believe that faith in Jesus brings us to heaven. I want to be clear about that. But the point of faith in Jesus isn't to wait until we die. Faith in Jesus is a beginning. It's beginning of being children of God. And the book of Leviticus can give us insight into what that means, into what does it look like to be a child of of God. Um, just as Jesus came to save us, the Israelites were saved by God out of slavery. And they had the same question. Uh, we are free. We're no longer slaves. Now what do we do? And again, what does it look like to be a child of God? And Leviticus can kind of show us that a little bit. Um, the other thing the book of Leviticus does is it shows children of God how to order their lives, how to order their lives. The order of Egypt was, there's a top and there's a bottom. There are free and there are slave. Uh, there are ri the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Well, now they're free. And what does it mean to live free? Well, they need to reorder how they do life. And Leviticus is so specific in its rules, because people who don't know how to live free, they need more instruction, not less instruction. It's sort of like um, how we uh, help people who are recovering from drug or alcohol addiction. You don't tell a recovering addict, you know something, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. That's not what you tell them. A recovering addict has been a slave to their addiction. And when they are free, they need a new order in how to live out their freedom. And Leviticus gives a template for ordering life. Uh, Leviticus also encourages the people to draw near to God. Draw near to God. This is a theme we're going to revisit over and over. Uh, after the Exodus, God leads the Israelites to Mount Sinai, and God descends onto the mountain to meet with Moses. This is where the giving of the Ten Commandments happens. And then he instructs them to build a tabernacle, um, a place for God to reside. And this is where God is going to dwell with the Israelites. Um, as I read from Exodus chapter 40, I just want you to try to envision what I read um, happening in that picture that you see on the screen, uh, where it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God heard the Israelites and came closer to them to deliver them. And then God takes them to Sinai and comes closer to them again by descending onto the mountain. And then God has them build a tabernacle and he comes even closer by descending into it. God kept coming closer and closer to the Israelites. And the response that God was looking for was, are the Israelites going to draw near to me? 
God is going to dwell in the tabernacle, not just anywhere, but in a place called the Holy of Holies. Um, and if you look at the uh, map here, if you go from right to left, you have the courtyard, which almost anyone could go into the courtyard. And then you have the holy place, which only the priests could go in. And then you have this place called the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest could go in. And then he could only go in there once a year. And God says, I'm going to dwell in the Holy of Holies, which is on the far left, which only the high priest can go to once a year. So given that being the case, well, then how do the people, how are the people supposed to draw near to God? And that is where the altar comes and plays a vital role. You see, the altar was in the courtyard, a place that the people could come, bring their offering, interact with God, and draw near. This is where the people could come to draw near to God. And as we, and we, I want you to just remember, anytime you see this altar, this altar is a visual reminder that God wants us to draw near to him. Um, we fashioned this altar um, after our stone altar that was found in Israel in a city called Beersheba. Uh, that altar dates back easily 600 years before Jesus. It's the same design as the one that was used in the temple, although the one used in the temple was much larger. Um, Leviticus begins with five sacrifices to bring to the altar. And we're going to look at one sacrifice each week. And these five sacrifices begin to show us how to order our lives as children of God. Um, we've asked Ron Miller to read the scripture for this morning. Ron, go ahead and make your way on up. As he does, I'm going to ask if you're able, please stand and face the center of the room. And we stand because we believe that this is the word of God. And we read from the center of the room to remind us that scripture is to be central in our lives. And so, Ron, whenever you are ready, please read from Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the tent entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall, bring, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Ron, thank you very much. You may be seated. It was about a year ago, um, one night, and it was, a, it was a rainy night, dark night, it was a pretty cold night, and my daughters had just left the house to go to dance practice, and they quickly came back uh, in the house, uh, to, into the house, 
um, to tell me that there was a stray puppy wandering around in our neighbor's yard. Um, and it was, again, it was dark, it was raining, it was cold. I have a heart for dogs. I like dogs. Uh, my family has a heart for dogs. They like dogs. And so I go outside to look for this puppy, and I see this adorable little puppy, all wet, with a cast on its back leg. That was my reaction. Oh, can't just let that puppy wander around. Um, you know, when you have a heart for dogs and you see a puppy in a cast in the rain at night and it's cold, you know, you're kind of compelled to go help it. Um, and so I get a leash and I bring the puppy into the house and the puppy is scared. And so I give it a treat and I kind of sit a safe distance away and I put my hand out for the dog to sniff. And, and after about 10 minutes or so, the dog approaches me. It starts to lick my hand. I put the dog on my lap and I pet it. And then after a while, the dog wasn't scared. It was more happy and it had found joy in the presence of my home and family. And we did eventually find the owners of the puppy and we did return it, even though it was really cute. Uh, that was the right thing to do. Um, God was compelled to rescue the Israelites. God had a heart for them and he cared about them. And so when he saw them in slavery and heard them cry out, he had to do something. Now, even though God delivered them and rescued them, doesn't mean that the Israelites weren't scared. They saw the plagues. Uh, they saw the Red Sea parted. They saw the lightning on Mount Sinai. And again, they really didn't know this God. God had been silent for generations, for hundreds of years. And now God wants to show them what it means to be a child of God. And God wants to give them a better way to order their lives. And so God begins with what is called the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was a voluntary offering. It was an offering you brought when you were ready. It was voluntary. You brought it when you were ready. The burnt offering was not mandatory. You did not have to do it. If you look in your Bibles, back to verse 2 of Leviticus 1, where it says, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, Bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. It's when you bring an offering. And this is important because you had a choice whether or not to bring a burnt offering. And you brought it when you were ready. And it reminds me of the puppy. I had rescued it. I was feeding it. I was caring for it. But I couldn't force it to come to me. That would have been kind of cruel. It was scared. So I had to let it come to me when it was ready. And God had shown lots of power to the Israelites, but God wasn't going to use his power to force them to come to him. God reached out his hand and said, come when you're ready. And if you think about it, this is how all healthy relationships work. We can't force people into relationship with us. We must act in a way that when the other person is ready to enter in a relationship to, with us, they do so. They come. And we often think that these sacrifices were demanded by God. And some of them are. Some of them are mandatory. But this one isn't. God says, when you are ready, come close to me. Come with a burnt offering, and this is how you do the burnt offering. But when you do it, well, that is up to you. 
And the burnt offering was a response to God's goodness. Another assumption we make about sacrifices in the Old Testament is that the sacrifices were made to get something, whether it's forgiveness or protection or prosperity or something. Um, and there are some sacrifices that, are, that you at least get forgiveness out of. In this sacrifice, you basically don't really get anything in return. Um, sometimes, you know, we make deals with God where we approach God and we'll say, God, if you do this, I'll do that. You know, let my business succeed and I'll come to church every Sunday or something like that. Well, in this sacrifice, God is the one who acts first. He has already delivered the Israelites. And now the question is, how will the Israelites respond to God's goodness? And God says, when you bring me a burnt offering, this is how. But it's not to get anything. It's a response to what God has done. Um, if you go back to verse 2 in the passage, um, where it says, when anyone among you brings an offering uh, to the Lord, bring as your offering. That word offering is uh, korban, which means to come near. To come near. The purpose of the offering, of the burnt offering, was to come near to God. Now, verse 3 says that the offering is supposed to come from the herd. Um, that would be a cow, okay? Um, and uh, when you bring a cow, it should be a male without defect. Um, and you lay your hand on the cow's head, it says, and then you kill it. And you sprinkle its blood on the altar, and then you skin it. And I shouldn't laugh at that, uh, but you skin it, and then you cut it into pieces. Um, I'm not going to do any of that, okay? I'm just going to lay this cow on the altar nicely, and you can just relax there on the altar in a room full of people that are probably going to have hamburger for lunch. You'll be okay, though. Um, now, we read uh, in verse 9, we only read to verse 9, which talks about you take something from the herd. Um, if you were to go to verses 10 to 13, it also talks about you could bring a sheep or a goat. And you follow a similar process, and you can sacrifice a sheep or a goat instead of a cow. Um, if you go on to verses 14 to 17, it talks about that you can bring a bird. Um, and you follow a similar kind of process, and you bring a bird, and you can sacrifice it. But whether you bring a cow or a sheep or a bird, the burnt offering sacrifice is basically the same. The difference in animals is really all about what can you afford. What can you afford? If you're more wealthy, you bring a cow. If you're more middle class, you bring a sheep. If you're more on the poor end, you bring a bird. But regardless of what you bring, this is how you come near to God. And if you're thinking what I'm thinking, you should be thinking something like, well, this is really kind of strange. Um, what a strange way to approach God. What a stranger way to come near to God. Well, this is what we call ritual. This is a ritual from thousands of years ago in a very different culture. So, of course, it's going to seem strange to us. But, you know, the whole idea of ritual is more common than you think. We all have rituals. We go through rituals all the time in our culture. Sometimes we're aware of it. Sometimes we're not. Um, February 14th was a day of ritual. 
It's a day of ritual to show your love. And what is an acceptable ritual for showing your love on February 14th? Well, if you're a guy, traditionally, here's the ritual. You buy flowers or candy or stuffed animal. I don't know what those things have to do with each other. But you buy something like that. Uh, Now, if you buy flowers, what you buy is based upon what you can afford. But if you're going to buy flowers, they better be store-bought. They better not be flowers that you swipe from your neighbor's yard. That will have a whole lot less meaning. and then after you give the gift, oh, and in my household, I present flowers in a vase. That's how my uh, wife prefers flowers. Um, and then after that, you go out for dinner. And where you go for dinner is, again, based upon what you can afford, but it better be a nicer place than when you usually go, okay? Um, and so we have this February 14th ritual where you buy flowers, you go out for dinner, and now you have shown your love. How strange is that going to seem to people 2,000 years from now? Okay, I'm just saying. Um, So you bring a cow, you bring a sheep, you bring a bird, and you sacrifice it, and you draw near to God. The ritual may be strange to us, but the concept of drawing near to God is not. Uh, If you look at verse 3 of your passage, where it talks about the burnt offering, the word for burnt offering there is ola. And ola means to go up, to ascend. Uh, As the offering burns, the smoke of the offering literally goes up. And so the Israelites approach God and bring their offering, and it goes up. And so even though God has drawn near to us, even though God has come down to us, God is still above us. Uh, He's still higher than we are. He's still superior to us. He is God. We are his children. But also with God being up, with God being above it reminds us that he is also watching over us. Um, If you go back to the passage in your Bibles and go to the very end, go to verse 9 of Leviticus chapter 1 and go to the second half um, of the verse where it says, it is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Now, if you are in your Bibles, go ahead and skip down to verse 13. And it's talking about now the sheep. And it says the same thing. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If you skim down all the way to verse 17, and now it's talking about the bird, it ends the same way. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. God wants the Israelites to come near to him And God says, I am pleased with you. God is pleased with you. All the Israelites have known is slavery. And again, it's like someone who's been a slave to addiction, their lives need to be reordered. And the book of Leviticus is a reordering of their lives. And so how do you reorder the lives of people who've been slaves and that's all they've ever known? Well, God says they are my children. They are the children of God. If I were reordering their lives, I would take the same approach that I have with my children. And I want my children to be thankful and to be respectful 
I want them to work hard and be disciplined. I want my kids to reflect the best of me. Um, and I want my kids to have a high character. And I know that my kids aren't going to be perfect. They're going to do things wrong. And so when they do something wrong, I want my kids to admit when they're wrong. And I want my kids to make sure uh, they make things right when they wrong someone else. These are great things to instill in your children. And these would be great things for God to instill into the Israelites. But if you just go over that list of what I just said, thankful, respectful, work hard, discipline, represent well, character, make amends, all those things are vital, but something really important is missing. Our children need to know that we are pleased with them that we love them. If our children don't know that we love them, if our children do not think that we are pleased with them, it's gonna be really hard to instill the rest of those vital things in them. If all they ever hear from us is be thankful and respectful and work hard and be disciplined and represent us well and have good character and make amends and do this and don't do that and be like this and don't be like that. That doesn't sound that much different from slavery. So God wants to reorder the lives of the slaves. And the very first thing God does in reordering the world of the Israelites is to tell them first, I am pleased with you. In the life of a slave, they've lived their whole lives where they're really not even people. The people in power don't really care about their slaves. The gods of the people in power don't even know who you are, much less care about you. In slavery, it's all about what you can do, what you can produce. And when they can't produce anymore, they're tossed aside. Does any of this sound familiar? We are taught to work hard, to go to school, learn a trade, get a degree, be good in sports or drama or music or something, and be successful. And success means that you have value, and your value is based upon what you can produce and what you can do. And I'm not saying that's all bad. I'm just saying the Israelites haven't done anything yet, and God says, I'm pleased with you. I'm pleased with you. I'm pleased with you. He reorders their lives by reaffirming their value first. Now, there is more to reordering their lives than just that. We have four more sacrifices to go, but this is where God begins. I am pleased with you. Before you have done anything, God is pleased with you. And as a child of God, your life needs to be reordered with that being first. God being pleased with us is something significant. Yes, God is powerful and his power is awesome and all that good stuff, but God's love is awesome. And that is also amazing that he would be pleased with us. It's actually unbelievable, which is part of the problem. We don't believe it. Or we minimize God and say, well, of course, God has to love us. He's God. God doesn't have to love us. But he does love us. God isn't obligated to love us, but he still does. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, before he did any miracles, before he did any teaching, before he really did anything, 
He was baptized. And we can read about his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3. I'm just going to read from Matthew chapter 3. The other verses are on the screen in smaller print. Um, But Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus hadn't done anything. Before Jesus did anything, the voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Parents, if you have kids elementary age or younger, let me give you a parenting tip. Say this to your kids every night before they go to bed. Say, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. It will take you five seconds. But you tell that to your kids every night, and by the time they move out of the house, that truth will be deeply embedded in them. God is pleased with us. God is pleased with you. God is pleased with me. He's not pleased with everything we do. But God is pleased with you. One way that we draw near to God uh, is worship. And just like the question for the Israelites that God has rescued them and God is pleased with them, how are they going to respond? Well, in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, Jesus has rescued us and God is pleased with us. How are we going to respond in this moment? And when we worship, we don't bring animals, we bring our voices. As it says in Romans 12:1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In a moment, we're going to respond to God's mercy, and we're going to worship God by praising him. It's our opportunity to draw near to God this morning, believing that he is pleased with us. Please pray with me. And Lord, we do come before you um, this morning. Some of us uh, come to you uh, joyfully. Some of us are a little unsure. But Lord, I would ask that your spirit would work in our hearts and that you would encourage us in this moment to draw near to you. And as we worship, may we just have that sense um, of your closeness uh, and of your love for us and that you are pleased with us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You know, earlier I mentioned um, how we really don't interact much with Aaron and his sons and the priesthood, that that's all foreign to us. There is one part that we regularly interact from Aaron and that priesthood, and that's a blessing that we often do here from Numbers chapter 6. 
And God told Aaron to bless the people, saying, May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.